0: From Toronto, Canada, The
1: Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren, And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Derek P. Gilbert, the host of Skywatch TV... A weekly Christian television program is here to connect the dots between scripture, archaeology, Bible prophecy, and more to expose the enemy in the imminent end-time showdown between the fallen realm and the kingdom of God. Giants are real. The small G gods of the pagans are real. Dragons are real. And their ultimate goal? It's to kill you. Derek joins me this hour. Coming up in hour two, Joseph Lorendo is from New Hampshire, and he's lived a life of serendipity. He's the author of Cosmic Coincidences, a memoir of cosmic proportions. You know, I, get, I still get a lot of people emailing me before showtime asking, what's on the show this week? What's happening tonight? It's it, Just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and then bookmark it. Uh, in his new book, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, co-authored by his wife, Sharon, Derek Gilbert reveals the identities of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the connections between Babel, Babylon, and what's in your wallet, the three dragons who will walk the earth in the last days, the name of the first spirit to rebel against God. Here's a hint. It wasn't Satan. The link to Between the Fallen Angels of Genesis and the Titans of Greek Mythology, The Identity of Nimrod, and The True Location of Babel, and more. Derek is also the author or co-author of a number of other books, including The Day the Earth Stands Still, Bad Moon Rising, Islam, Armageddon, and the Most Diabolical Double Cross in History, Veneration, Unveiling the Ancient Realms of Demonic Kings, and Satan's Battle Plan, for Armageddon, The Great Inception, The Last Clash of the Titans, and again, his latest, co-authored with his wife, Sharon, Giants, Gods, and Dragons. Derek Gilbert, welcome back to the program. How are you?
0: I'm doing well, Richard. It's an honor to be back.
1: Delighted to have you. My wife and I are re-watching, it's been a number of years, maybe 10 years since we saw it, Left Behind, the three-part series starring Kirk Cameron, which of course is about the end times and the uh, the final battle between good and evil. How accurate is the Left Behind series in your estimation? And of course, it sort of begins with this pre-tribulation rapture. Do you subscribe to the notion of a pre-trib rapture? And, and maybe you should explain what that is exactly.
0: The pre-tribulation rapture is the theory that uh, the Church, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, will be... Uh, Basically, supernaturally removed from the earth before the final seven year period that is called the Great Tribulation. This is based on a prophecy that was given to the prophet Daniel by an angel, Gabriel, who described a period of 70 weeks. So these are actually weeks of years that there would be 70 weeks decreed for Daniel's people and uh, his holy city uh, to bring an end to uh, everything, and then uh, the Messiah would come. And, uh, and and basically restore justice on earth and set up his own kingdom. Um, this is kind of the time stamp for the pre-tribulational rapture theory, the assumption being that at the end of the 69th week, the Messiah arrived in Jerusalem. He was, he was announced. Um, a scholar about 100 years ago, Sir Robert Anderson, who interestingly was part of the investigative team uh, during the Jack the Ripper murders, which is something that uh, my wife has researched for her fiction series, The Red Wings Saga, which begins with the Ripper murders, uh, Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book called The Coming Prince, and he calculated that the 360-day uh, month, based on the lunar calendar, the 30-day lunar month, which was the standard in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Israel, still the standard for the Hebrew calendar today and the Malcolm calendar as well, was how we can calculate the uh, length of time between the decree of the Persian king Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and the arrival of Messiah. And uh, uh, Sir Robert calculated that uh, Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem happened exactly to the day. So that's the end of the 69th week. The 70th week, that final seven-year period, is the period of the time called the the time of Jacob's trouble, when uh, Israel is really tested. The church is out of here, and... uh, for many of us who accept the theory, it's that 70 weeks theory, that 70 weeks prophecy that uh, is the assumption on which we base this belief, because when the angel spoke to Daniel and said 70 weeks have been decree for your people, presumably he meant the Jews. So the Church is removed. There are other clues in, in the book of Revelation, but uh, uh, we could do an entire hour just on that. But that's uh, the sure. pre-tribulational rapture. Um, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, when they created the Left Behind series, they they had to take some creative license with the prophecies. Not everybody agrees with all of their interpretation. Um, I read, I think, the first six books in the series, and then I started noticing a lot of the secondary characters were named after baseball players from the 60s and 70s. <laughs> 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 and at that point, I was like, well, okay, maybe I should actually go to the Bible instead of getting my theology from fiction. And I say this as one who writes supernatural fiction, from a Christian perspective. So, right. uh, you know, I don't mean that as any slight against, uh, against Lahey and Jenkins. Um, what we do that's a little different in terms of end times prophecy, Sharon and me, is uh, apply the understanding of the Hebrew prophets and the apostles, that, and the early church, by the way, that the gods of Greece and Rome and Babylon and Canaan were real. Think of them as fallen angels, if you will, but they were real. And they had an influence in the uh, uh, in the natural realm. And uh, when you start digging into what the pagans around ancient Israel believed, suddenly some of the weirder sections of the Bible, including end times prophecy, begin to make sense. So that's where we differ a little bit in our approach to um, trying to understand the book of Revelation than uh, others.
1: Okay, so this connection between the fallen angels in Genesis 6... It came down and commingled with the daughters of men and and had these hybrids, if you will, half human, half angel. These were referred to as the Nephilim. So how are they connected with the, let's say, the titans of Greek mythology?
0: Well, interestingly, the Jewish religious scholars of the Second Temple period, that's the time between the return from Babylon and the destruction of the Second Temple by Rome in 70 A.D., The Jewish religious scholars understood that very well. There are uh, places in the Septuagint translation, which was a translation done by Jewish scholars about 300 years before the birth of Jesus, from older Hebrew manuscripts into Greek, where they translated giants, uh, or Nephilim, or Rephaim, which is another term that we uh, find in the Bible, but it's there more than we think, because it's often translated into English as the dead or the shades. They would translate that Hebrew word Rephaim, into titanes, or titans, or gigantes, or giants. So they understood the connection. The scholarly connection for us in the modern world, who kind of lost this worldview, I mean, it fell out of favor with uh, Christian theologians around the time of uh, Augustine in the early 5th century. Uh, A scholar from Estonia by the name of Amar Anus has done some fantastic work and showed a couple of things in a paper that he published in 1999, peer-reviewed secular paper. So he's not approaching this from a Christian perspective necessarily. He showed that the term used by the Greek poet Hesiod, who wrote a lot of what we know, uh, what we know as Greek mythology, you know, the origin of the gods and or the origin of the cosmos and the earth and so forth, the term that he used to refer to the men who lived during the Golden Age When Kronos ruled in heaven, he was the king of the Titans. Uh, He and his brothers and sisters were overthrown by Zeus and the Olympians and then banished to Tartarus, which is a level as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. Uh, This term used by Hesiod for the men of the Golden Age, maropes anthropoi, actually derives from the Semitic root behind the word Rephaim. So you've got this connection between the Rephaim, which simply put, were the spirits of the Nephilim, the spirits of the giants, and the demigod heroes of Greek and Roman mythology, like Hercules and, and Perseus and, and Bellerophon and Cadmus and so forth. By definition, those demigods were Nephilim. And the Jews, through, up until about the second century, understood this. The early church fathers understood this. It, when you read the writings of the early church theologians for the first 400 years, after the resurrection, it was just understood. This is where demons come from. The spirits of those giants destroyed in the flood, and the giants were created when these fallen angels came to earth and, uh, m- uh, you know, commingled with human women. The connection to the Titans in the New Testament, Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude verses 6 and 7, they both make reference to angels who sinned and specifically committed a sexual sin. And for that crime, they were condemned to Tartarus. In fact, in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, uh, the English translation reads, uh, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he thrust them down to hell. But the word in Greek is tartarau, means he thrust them down to Tartarus. Not Hades, Tartarus. Different place. Peter knew the difference. He lived in a world dominated by Greek religion and philosophy for 300 years before he wrote his letters. So, um, the only angels we know of who committed a sexual sin are in Tartarus, just like the Titans of Greek mythology, whose name, by the way, according to that Estonian scholar Amar Anu's, actually derives from the name of an ancient tribe of the Amorites, who were neighbors of the ancient Israelites.
1: Ah, interesting. So, Apollo is he in Tartarus?
0: No, he is not. Um, there was a second generation of uh, what the Bible calls sons of God in Hebrew, bnei ha Elohim. Uh, again, we can think of them as angels, but that's a really imprecise term. After the Tower of Babel incident, God confused the languages of the nations and he divided the nations. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 says that when God uh, numbered them, or divided the nations, he numbered them according to the number of the sons of God. And uh, there is a tradition among some of the pagans around ancient Israel that their chief god, uh, El to the Canaanites, Dagon to the Amorites and the Philistines, had 70 sons. This number 70 in the ancient Near East represented the complete set, all of them, not one left out. Those sons of God, the sons of their chief God, were the gods who ruled the nations. The Jewish religious scholars understood that those were the angels, these fallen angels, were the gods of their pagan neighbors, Chemosh of the Moabites and Milcom of the the Ammonites and so forth, Uh, and... uh, there was a Semitic god by the name of Reshef, considered a plague god, a warrior who was an archer. Well, there are ancient texts that have been found in the last 200 years that identify this character, Reshef, who's mentioned in the Bible a couple of times, but again, his name has been translated into English as plague, uh, is Apollo. So Apollo is actually in the Bible, in Habakkuk chapter three is described as following at God's heels when He marches forth from Mount Sinai. So we can be pretty sure that Apollo's not in the abyss with Cronos and the rest of the Titans. Um, in fact, in the book Giants, Gods, and Dragons, Sharon and I argue that the first horseman of the apocalypse, the rider on the white horse, is actually Apollo.
1: Oh, well, that's interesting, and that's uh, uh, oh. So when we talk about the Greek pantheon, the Greek gods, Zeus. There is a reference in Revelation to the altar of Zeus, which is, right. is somewhere in modern-day Turkey, or it was. It was uncovered by a German archaeologist who moved it to a museum in, I think, in Berlin. In fact, the, the they built a, a structure to house the the altar. Uh, the The altar was used as inspiration um, for. When we see that uh, famous uh, film by, Reim, um, by um, the German filmmaker uh, oh, Remy Liefenstahl. Liefenst- uh, yeah. Liefen, uh, Riefenstahl. Right, Triumph of the Will. And Hitler is standing on this huge edifice. That is supposed to be a, a likeness of the altar uh, of Zeus. Uh, Jesus calls that out as the throne of Satan. So right. is that to suggest that Zeus is, in fact, Satan?
0: I argued in uh, my book, Last Clash of the Titans, that that is, in fact, who Satan is. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus also identifies Satan as Baal, who was the chief god of the Canaanite neighbors of ancient Israel. Baal, like Zeus, was a storm god, like Thor, Jupiter of Rome. Uh, There are a number of other storm gods that were the top of their pantheon. Indra, for the ancient uh, Indian culture, Perun for the Slavs, and in all of these cultures, and we see Marduk in, in Babylon, who had storm god attributes. They replace another god at the top of the pantheon. In Canaan, it was El. In, uh, of course, Greece, it was uh, Kronos. In, Ju- in uh, Rome, it was uh, Saturn. They're pushed out of the top spot of the pantheon by the storm god, Zeus, Jupiter, Baal. In uh, Matthew 12, Jesus is confronted by Pharisees who say, well, he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which means Baal the prince. And Jesus comes back at them and says, if Satan's casting out demons by his own power, how will his house stand? So Jesus identifies the storm god of the pagans around ancient Israel, Baal, Zeus,
1: Jupiter, as Satan. But as you point out in the book, and this is something I didn't know, and that is that the first entity or spirit or angel to rebel against God wasn't, in fact, Satan.
0: Yeah, in Genesis chapter 1, there's a uh, reference to the spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep, the earth was without form, and void darkness was over the face of the deep. And the word there, deep, is tehom, which in Akkadian is temtum, and that is a cognate, same word, different language for a Sumerian word, tiamat. Well, tiamat was the primordial chaos monster, or chaos dragon. And that is a this struggle between a warrior god and a chaos monster is a very common story, in the religions of the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia. Tiamat had to be subdued by uh, Marduk in the most famous of these stories, but when you go back in uh, older versions of that story, it was Enlil, whom Marduk replaced at the top of the Pantheon. The older version of that story had the sky god Anu subduing Tiamat, and Anu was replaced at the top of the Pantheon by Enlil. Um, In uh, in, uh, Greek religion, you had a chaos monster called Typhon, who had to be subdued by Zeus. In uh, the Egyptian pantheon, you had... uh, a popus who had to be subdued every single night by the god Set, who guarded the solar boat of Ra as it went over the horizon. And uh, interesting that, uh, as you discussed on last week's program with Tom Horn, the Wormwood Prophecy. You know, isn't it interesting NASA chose to name this incoming asteroid that's going to pass within the orbits of right. our uh, satellites a populace. Anyway, this was a common thread in these religions. We even see it in uh, the Norse mythology, where Thor had to defeat a, a, a chaos serpent named Jormungandr. The, the Hurrians and the Hittites had similar stories. It's a common thread. Uh, but the difference is that in the Bible, this, this entity, Leviathan, was subdued by Genesis 1, verse 2. Now, there are other references to Leviathan in the Bible, um, uh, in Psalm 78 for one, uh, Job 41 for another. But uh, this this entity was subdued by God in order to bring uh, order from chaos, if you will. And uh, it's just a story that's been retold by uh, pagan cultures uh, throughout the generations.
1: Where did this Leviathan come from?
0: It would presumably be one of the creatures that God created prior to creating Eden and putting Adam and Eve in the garden. In fact, Sharon and I are going to work on a book probably for next year that will be on this entity and chaos, because uh, I think if we look at what's happened around the world well, in recent days, but even just the last 14 months or so, I think we can see the influence of chaos is still pretty strong.
1: Oh, yes. All right. We'll uh, take a time out. Derek Gilbert, co author of Giants, Gods, and Dragons, and uh, we'll discuss the connections between Babel, Babylon, and what's in your wallet. We mentioned one of the identities of the four horsemen, the white horseman, is Apollo. Who are the other three? And uh, we'll also. Uh, Talk about the identity of Nimrod And the true location of Babel Much more to come Stay right where you are Right here on The Conspiracy Show My name is Richard Serrett Back with more in a moment
0: Peering into the shadows Where the truth often hides You're listening to The
1: Conspiracy Show With Richard Serrett Welcome back Eric Gilbert stays with us from Skywatch TV. The book is Giants, Gods, and Dragons. So, when the the fallen angels came down to Earth, do we know how many they were? Do we know any of their names? And do we know the exact location where they came to Earth?
0: The uh, rebellion led by a uh, character named Shemiyaza. This is the uh, the Watchers' rebellion who descended to Mount Hermon, according to the Book of First Enoch. Uh, led a group of about 200, and there are a number of them that are named in the book of First Enoch. This is not in the Bible. It is considered canon by the uh, the Coppet Church in Ethiopia, but um, it was known to the Jews of the Second Temple period, it was known to the Apostles because uh, both Peter and Jude make reference to the event, the events uh, described in, in the earliest chapters, the first 36 chapters of First Enoch, what uh, scholars call the Book of the Watchers, the Book of the Giants, um, Shemiaza is one. The other main character that uh, is worth mentioning is Azael or Azazel. And essentially, those two of the 200 are blamed for most of what uh, evil they brought to the earth. Shemiaza for uh, convincing his colleagues to go along with him in this plan to take human wives and uh, produce children, and Azael or Azazel for teaching us things we weren't supposed to know, like uh, sorcery and divining the future and uh, contacting the spirits and and things of that nature. So you've almost got, uh, with those two, you've got, uh, with Azael, almost a Prometheus character in Greek mythology, the one who stole fire from Olympus and was punished for that. And uh, again, the Shemayaza character, I'm going to argue in my forthcoming book, that uh, he is to be identified as Kronos or Saturn of the Titans.
1: Ah, and when the fallen angels took these women and had children with them, the Nephilim, were they taken by force? Was there an exchange for this technology? Did they deceive and trick the daughters of men?
0: That's really an interesting question. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 2 says, they took as their wives any they chose, which sort of implies that the women didn't have any choice in it. But in the book of First Enoch, the angels are condemned by God for defiling themselves with human women, and that the women seduced them or enticed them into these relationships. So there are different interpretations on that. I'll go with the biblical interpretation rather than the extra-biblical one, but it is uh, interesting that there are different versions of this, that uh, these angels saw how beautiful this creation was called Earth, and specifically the uh, uh, humans that he created, that God created to take dominion over the Earth. And uh, decided that uh, <laughs> they wanted to uh, get to know us a little better, apparently. Uh, it's, w- when we look at the story of Lot in, in Sodom, though, um, I-, I think there's an interesting, uh, and again, this is speculative, but there's some speculation that the angels who visited Lot and his family to try to rescue them from the city, uh, as God had asked of, or as Abraham had asked of God, that uh, the men may have been attracted, the men of Sodom attracted to those angels because they recognized them for what they were, supernatural beings and desired that contact because of a belief that through that physical contact, they might get some of the power from these angelic beings. Again, that's speculation. Don't know that for a fact, but that may have been part of the dynamic going on back in the days of Noah.
1: Now, the women that first, I guess, um, had relations with these fallen angels, do we know any of their identities? No, we don't. And... When they give birth, because they were giving birth, the the Nephilim were giants, one would assume then that their giving birth would hasten their death, the women.
0: You'd assume so. But again, the clues that we get from sources that I would rely on, and, and again, I think First Enoch is useful insofar as it helps us to understand the strange event that's only mentioned in four verses in Genesis, and then a few passing references later in Scripture if you know what you're looking for, references to the cult venerating the dead, it helps us to understand that a little bit better because uh, the Book of Enoch makes clear that the spirits of these giants, when they were destroyed, because they were hybrid, they were neither fully human nor fully divine. They were condemned to wander the earth until the end of time, until judgment, basically tormenting humanity. Um, But we don't really know much more than that from uh, from any of the texts. There are a lot of fanciful texts from the Second Second Temple period, uh, like the Qumran, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, but uh, again, you got to be kind of careful as far, as far as how much uh, trust you put in those.
1: Right, and and when Nephilim was slain, uh, or when they when they died during the uh, the flood, they became demons. Correct. Is that what happens to that, them? That
0: is the. Uh, That's what's specified in in the book of Enoch, that those spirits will be called evil spirits condemned to wander the earth until the judgment, tormenting humanity. And again, that was the understanding of the early church fathers. Uh, You read the writings on uh, demons by uh, early theologians like Irenaeus and Athenagoras and Clement of Rome and Justin Martyr and Origen and, and Tertullian and so forth. They were in agreement that the giants were created by this unholy union of angels and humans and... The spirits that proceeded from those giants after death are the demons that, uh, uh, that, that uh, uh, plagued the earth. What's interesting uh, when you read the, the writings of the Greek poet Hesia that I mentioned in the previous segment, um, his work called Theogony is, uh, is where we get a lot of what we know about the Greek religion, ancient Greek religion. He also understood that the men of the Golden Age, these demigods of the Golden Age, when Kronos ruled in heaven, when the watchers walked the earth, in other words, when they died, their spirits became daemons, demons. Except that the understanding of these demons by Hesiod and other Greek and Roman uh, religious uh, thinkers was very different from the Jewish and Christian concept of demons. They believed that they were kindly and helpful and would You know, uh, bestow gifts on humans as long as you were offering them sacrifices.
1: Right, right. And um, we had these, uh, you know, the oracles of Delphi and so forth, and these priestesses in in the various temples. Were they then communicating with these demons or, or directly with the fallen angels? How were they getting their messages and from whom?
0: That is a really interesting question, and it led to some research that turned up some interesting and surprising. information uh, for the book. Yes, I believe that they were hearing from something. Uh, Apollo was the god who was um, believed to be the, the one who, who fed information to the oracles in the Greek and Roman periods, so the classical period. Uh, going back further in history, there were different gods in Mesopotamia. The sun god Shemash and the storm god uh, uh, Hadad or Baal were the ones who uh, helped uh, diviners see into the future. But, uh, yeah, the, the oracles of Apollo... Um, and uh this this led to the creation of the the sibylline books that were used as a uh, an oracular guide for the government of Rome from about uh, 500 BC until about the 1st century AD um after the, the the resurrection of Jesus when this this uh christian cult began to spread from Jerusalem around the mesopotamian over the next 3 centuries those oracles began to fall silent and uh in fact the worst persecution of Christians was not during the time of Nero in the first century A.D., it was in the late third century under Diocletian and his uh, co-emperor Galerius, and it's because Galerius had visited one of these oracles and was told that uh, because of the righteous men, referring to Christians, uh, essentially the signal's not coming through anymore. And so Galerius reported back to Diocletian, and suddenly uh, Christians were being uh, uh, deprived of property, they were being imprisoned. They they were kicked out of the army, and uh, that was the worst persecution of Christians. It was because the oracles of Apollo were falling silent because of the influence of the Holy
1: Spirit and Christianity. Oh, that's interesting. So, getting back to the uh, the Nephilim, uh, yeah, in Genesis six, it says something that we, there were giants in those days, and again later. So, presumably post flood, if they were wiped out during the flood how did we end up with uh, Goliath and, and other giants after they were wiped off the face of the earth, presumably?
0: Well, a couple of answers to that. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, a friend of ours, who can actually read the original languages, uh, I, that's, that's not my gift, points out that in Genesis 6, the verse that says, um, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Of course, that's a euphemism. Um... Uh, He says that the Hebrew word translated into English as when, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, can also mean whenever. So the Nephilim were on the earth whenever the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So there may have been a second incursion. I'm not sure about that. I tend to think that these uh, angelic beings, seeing their brothers who had been chained in gloomy darkness, to use the phrase of uh, the, uh, the apostle Jude, uh, didn't want to suffer that same fate. So I don't know that there was another incursion, and, and we point out a pointed out in our previous book, Veneration, Sharon and I, that uh, the, the the giants that in, were encountered by David and his men, who are described as descendants of the giant, uh, in in the book of Second Samuel, the Hebrews Yelade uh, Yellow Yelade is not a term that refers to literal blood descendant. It is one that means servant of. And we argue that what you've got with Goliath and his brothers are not, I mean, yes, they were, they were larger than average size. There's some dispute about the, uh, the Hebrew text was, was Goliath nine foot nine or only six foot nine? Either way, that's still really big at a time when the average Israelite soldier was about five foot four. But, uh, they were more likely members of a warrior cult that venerated the spirits of these Nephilim. As evidence, and it's circumstantial, but as evidence, one of the giants killed by David and his man was named Ishbi Benob, B-E-N-O-B. It's usually spelled in our Hebrew Bibles as one word, Benob. It's actually two words. It's Ben-Ov. The word OB in Hebrew, ov, means medium or necromantic ritual pit. In other words, it's where you would go or the person you would talk to to communicate with the spirits of the dead. In other words, demons. So this giant Uh, was the son of the medium and was likely part of a cult that actually venerated these warrior spirits. Now, larger than average.
1: Excuse me, Derek, I've got to jump in here. We have to take a timeout. We'll come back and pick up on that. Derek Gilbert, co-author of Giants, Gods, and Dragons right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
0: You want the truth?
1: You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Derek Gilbert hosts Skywatch TV, a weekly Christian television program, and co-host Friday, a weekly TV program that looks at science news with his wife, author, and analyst Sharon Gilbert. Together, they're the authors of Giants, Gods, and Dragons. So post-flood, now we had Nimrod, sometimes, I guess, described as... uh, um, you know, the the first emperor or, you know, the first uh, one who tried to bring about a, a kind of a new world order. Was Nim- Nimrod is, is a descendant of N- Noah, correct? One of Noah's, is it Shem or who is he uh, connected he, he
0: descends to? From, he descends from Ham by way of uh, yeah. uh, Canaan or by, by way of Cush. Uh, so uh, Nimrod was the second generation after the flood. And the basis of his kingdom, the base of his kingdom was uh, a city called Uruk, U-R-U-K. In the Bible, it's Erech, E-R-E-C-H. But uh, that's the same name that we call that land by today, Iraq. Isn't it interesting? Ah, you know, when uh, right. the Brits and the French divided up the land after World War I, they chose the name of Nimrod's kingdom. There is a historical character in the, Syri- the, Sumerian, uh, the Sumerian king list by the name of Enmerkar, who, like Nimrod, was the second king of Uruk after the flood. And there's some poetry that has survived. Uh, Now, the Uruk period of history, scholars, archaeologists, they know about this. Roughly from 3,900 B.C. to 3,100 B.C., that city, Uruk, in southeast Iraq, controlled everything between the Tigris and Euphrates as far north as the mountains of Turkey. It was a dominant city, and uh, they had a lot of influence on history. Uh, Nimrod probably lived sometime during that period of history. Um, there was a one of the poems that survives about this this Enmerkar, who I think is Nimrod, is that he tried to rebuild a temple at the ancient city of Eridu, E R I D U, for the god Enki. This temple was called the Abzu, which is where we get the word abyss. So Nimrod Enmerkar tried to build uh, this this temple up to be an abode of the gods, according to this poem. And uh, the poem mentions the confusion of languages. And interestingly, when archaeologists dug at this site in 1949, they found that the top layer uh, that they found for the Temple of Enki, which would have been the largest ziggurat in all of Mesopotamia, the steppe pyramids of uh, Mesopotamia, this would have been the largest and oldest uh, because the bottom layer goes back to like 5000 BC, uh, except it was never completed. They said that the top layer, which, which uh, coincides with the end of the Uruk period of history, as it moved into a new phase of history in Mesopotamia, the uh, temple was not completed, and it was very quickly covered over with drifting sand. Which we read in the, uh, the end of uh, Genesis uh, that, that story in Genesis chapter 11, um, God confused the languages and they left off building the city. So archaeology confirming the narrative in the, in the biblical account.
1: And, and what was the, the Tower of Babel supposed to uh, accomplish? What, what was it? What, 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 what was its purpose?
0: Best guess, because the Bible doesn't tell us, but best guess, based on this poem, which is called Enmerkar and the Lord of Orata, is that he was trying to build a, a, a home on earth for the gods. And again, think of them as fallen angels, but uh, that appears to be, appears to have been the point of this this temple. They weren't so primitive 5,000 years ago that they thought that they could stack mud bricks up high enough to reach the sky. That was not the purpose. They were trying to build essentially a portal, if you will, a supernatural portal to bring the gods down to mankind. And again, as we read, God confused the languages, divided the nations, and then in Deuteronomy 38, uh, 32, verse 8, Uh, It says that he numbered the nations according to the number of the sons of God. Essentially, a a new generation of angelic beings was placed as uh, supervisors, as the gods of the nations. We see this in Deuteronomy 4, verses 19 and 20. God allotted these angelic beings, the host of heaven, to the nations for their gods, but reserved Israel for himself. And then in Psalm 82, uh, if you're, you're... Listeners should read Psalm 82, because it reads like a a courtroom scene in heaven. God condemns these angels, these sons of God, for ruling unjustly. And and, uh, it reads, in part, though you are God's sons of the Most High, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. The deaths of these gods has been prophesied by God himself.
1: Right, right. In the book, you, you make a connection between Babel, Babylon, and what's in your wallet? Mm. This is in the section where
0: we uh, identify the, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and I credit Sharon with this. Uh, all of the good ideas from our house come from her head. Several <laughs> years ago, she wrote a book called Ebola and the Fourth Horseman of the Apocalypse, and she pointed out in that book that the fourth rider, uh, death, In Greek is Thanatos, and Thanatos was known as a god, small g, god in the Greek pantheon. Uh, And Hades, likewise, followed with him. Hell followed with him. So she reasoned, if Thanatos and Hades are named, then who are the other three? We make the case for Apollo being the rider on the white horse. The rider on the red horse is war. That's pretty easy. Uh, Ares would be his name in the Greek pantheon, but we uh, found research by credentialed scholars who shows that uh, this is just Timosh, who is the national god of Moab. So this is a lot, you know, Ares, Mars, a lot older god, uh, worshiped a lot farther back than we thought. The rider on the black horse was a little tricky. This is the one who goes out uh, carrying scales. But the word translated scales in Greek, zugos, is uh, actually referring to a a yoke. Everywhere else that word in Greek is used in the New Testament, it refers to the yoke that you would put on the necks of uh, oxen, and uh, the description of what happens when this rider on the black horse rides um, looks like just economic uh, calamity. Uh, the prices just going through the roof, uh, people starving, uh, not able to buy enough just to make. But, but uh, I, I, we argue in the book that uh, this is essentially a picture of economic servitude, hence the, the yoke that the rider on the black horse carries. Uh, we look at our economic situation, and I'm sure you talked about this on your program. Where um, credit card debt, student loan debt, the, the real estate bubble, just within the last uh, 20 years or so, all designed to get us into a cycle of constantly being in debt, taking out loans and paying loans to our, our banking masters. And, of course, now the, uh, the, the push is on to do away with physical cash and move us all to a digital Currency, which means that none of us will have any economic financial privacy anymore. Everything we buy or sell will be tracked because it will all be c- recorded on a computer somewhere. So our argument was that this was a god in the ancient world who must have had something to do with ledgers, with accounts, with economic uh, uh, activity, commerce, and that would be the Greek god Hermes who was known in ancient Babylon as Nabu. And um, when you to begin looking at the, the characteristics of that god. Nabu in Babylon was a god of scribes, but he was also the god who kept the ledgers. In fact, they found just within oh. the last uh, 20 years or so a temple dedicated to Nabu of accounts.
1: And Interesting. So All right, Derek, we have aspect- to step away again. Okay. Quick, quick time out back with more of Derek Gilbert, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. <laughs> You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, Derek Gilbert stays with us a little while longer, uh, a few minutes longer, actually. Just a heads up, um, on uh, Saturday, next week, Saturday, or this week, technically, Saturday of this week, uh, on Coast to Coast, Derek will be with me. I think it's for three hours, isn't it, Derek?
0: That's uh, what the producer said, so I'm looking forward to it.
1: All right, well, we'll, we'll be able to drill down even deeper, but uh, um, I know that you're in, uh, in enjoying some of the... Uh, uh, the folks in our in our YouTube live chat and Why uh, Why uh, is uh, brings up an excellent point. She's suggesting that CERN is the modern day Tower of Babel. What do you think?
0: It's an interesting thought. I know uh, my uh, friend uh, Josh Peck, who co-authored the book with me on the uh, UFO phenomenon, the day that Earth stands still, co-authored with Tom Horn the book uh, Abaddon Ascending, about uh, CERN and what exactly they're doing there. They're trying, apparently, to break into another dimension. So in that sense, yeah, that would be a modern-day Tower of Babel, because, again, that appears to be what uh, Nimrod was trying to do.
1: All right. Now, uh, we were talking about the the, uh, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And uh, there's uh, the deadly rider on the pale horse, and uh, he's accompanied by wild beasts. What are these wild beasts?
0: This is something that out- grew out of that book that Sharon wrote about seven years ago on the Ebola outbreak, Ebola and the Fourth horseman of the Apocalypse. The Greek word is therion, which is the diminutive form of therop, meaning beast, so she argued that it uh, might be little beasts, in other words, bacteria or perhaps viruses, that are the instrument of death wielded by Thanatos. And uh, in fact, that was the, uh, the inspiration for this particular book. Tom Horn came to us, and uh, came to Sharon, actually, asked her if she would write a book um, on the, the COVID-19 outbreak in the context of Bible prophecy, she came to me and said, "What do you think? Can we maybe broaden this a little bit so it's a little more evergreen? Because COVID will fade, just as Ebola, thankfully, back in 2014 faded, and uh, so that was what led to this. Uh, what led to this book? But uh, when it comes to beasts, again, Therion might actually refer to something a little smaller than we normally think of.
1: Hmm. So when you see the the events playing out uh, in this way, I mean. And, and obviously this happens uh, every time that there is, you know, cataclysm in the world. We start thinking about uh, end times. Um, what do you think? Are we are we in the early stages of the tribulation?
0: Uh, I don't think we're going to be here during the great tribulation, but, you know, as Christians, we need to remember the words of Jesus said that anyone who followed him would be uh, subjected to tribulation. So I guess it's just a matter of degree. Um, there's no faster way to get... Christians arguing than to ask, you know, hey, pre, pre, pre post, or mid, uh, re- referring to the timing of the rapture. And then, of course, you've got the pre rath believers who uh, uh, kind of split the difference there between pre and mid. Um, I think we're looking at, uh, with COVID-19 and with the great reset initiative of the uh, the World Economic Forum, I think we're seeing what the arrival of the Antichrist will look like. We don't think this he's here yet. We certainly don't believe that uh, taking uh, a vaccine is the mark of the beast or anything like that. There's a lot of the book of Revelation you have to get through before you get to the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. But it will look something like this. There will be some sort of global crisis which will compel people to demand more government intervention in their lives. The World Economic Forum is trying to use this to roll out more uh, economic control, uh, essentially to try to eliminate the middle class, uh, Uh, especially here in the United States and Canada and the West. China is on board with the World Economic Forum because that fits into China's long-term goal, which is to uh, become the dominant superpower. But no, I I don't think we're there yet. We're closer to the end than to the beginning. But when we get right up on the arrival of this character called the Antichrist, the beast that emerges from the sea in Revelation 13, it's going to look a lot like what we've been through the last year.
1: How important is the construction of a third temple? Is it, in fact, the the third temple that we're talking about, or is the is the temple a metaphor for the church, uh, the Christian church, or or our, our bodies as a as a as a vessel for for God? Uh, we don't need a third temple as Christians. Uh, we pay attention to the movement
0: in Israel because it's an indication of what. Uh, Religious Jews are, are looking for those who see, a, 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 a who believe in end-times prophecy. But we have friends in Israel, both Orthodox Jews and Messianic Jews, and the, the political drive for the Third Temple in Israel uh, is not as popular there as it is in, say, the West, among American right. evangelical Christians and, Christian, and, and uh, Chinese Christians who send a lot of money to Israel to try to make this happen. Most Jews in Israel don't want a third temple because they... Say, we That's don't my understanding. ...synagogues now. Yeah, and uh, that some of this movement to push for the third temple is essentially a move to raise funds so that the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox community, will have more political power. Uh, a friend so, of ours over so there. So
1: you don't need a third temple constructed before the, before the arrival of the Antichrist because he's supposed no. to enter into the third temple, go into the Holy of Holies... Declare himself to be the Messiah.
0: Right, but you could do that with a tabernacle. The Jews used a tabernacle at Shiloh uh, for 369 years before they had a temple. So, uh, in fact, uh, one of our uh, a friend of ours now has become a friend. Jim Barfield of the Copper Scroll Project argues that there's a good chance that a cave at Qumran might house the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, if a tabernacle could be constructed, and perhaps not even on the Temple Mount, but at Qumran, which when you look at it from the air is essentially a map, a reversed map scaled down of the city of Jerusalem, um, it's possible that there would be a way to get around this, at least in the minds of observant Jews. So,
1: And how is the Antichrist yeah. going to deceive – how is he going to be able to deceive – uh, Christians, that he's the, the second coming of Christ, he's going to deceive the Jews, that he's their Messiah, he's going to de- uh, deceive Muslims, that he is what, the eleventh imam, he's going to achieve, He's going to deceive the Buddhists, that he is the, is it the compassionate Buddha? How is he going to manage to do all of that? Um, I mean, and, and is he going to come from the world of business, or uh, from the world of religion, the United Nations? Where? Yeah, that's Well, that's an excellent question. I I dove into that in my book,
0: Bad Moon Rising. My theory, and uh, this is one I'll I'll hold loosely because I reserve the right to be wrong, is that he will be a dynamic political or perhaps military leader from Israel. Uh, Now, I'm not saying he will be a Jew. I I think he will present himself as a Jew, that he will emerge at an hour of Israel's need when they are hard-pressed on all sides by uh, enemies, perhaps Islamic enemies. I think Islam's role in the end times, sadly, is essentially to serve as cannon fodder, because if such a dynamic Israeli were to lead Israel to a victory against overwhelming odds, there are rabbis in Israel who would declare him the Messiah on the spot. Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah ben David is here, and... If Christians are still here, there are a lot of Christians who support Israel. We love Israel. Uh, a lot of Christians might be tempted to see this man as the Messiah as well. If you understand end times prophecy correctly, you won't make that mistake, but not everybody does. I think that is a the most plausible scenario that I have come up with. I know it's not a popular one, but that seems to me to be a more um, plausible deception for Jews than, uh, say, an Islamic Antichrist or a Roman Catholic Antichrist.
1: Ah, interesting. All right. So, Giants, Gods, and Dragons. Uh, Derek, how do people get a copy?
0: It's available to all major bookstores. Of course, Amazon.com has it. And uh, the best deal, if you want to get that, plus a bunch of video teachings that Sharon and I have put on DVD, uh, the best place to go would be SkywatchTVStore.com. SkywatchTVStore.com. And look for it there, because... uh, Tom Horn, as he always does, throws in a whole bunch of other stuff when you order direct from us.
1: And how do we watch you on SkyWatch? Is that subscribe? Do we have to subscribe? No,
0: it is uh, YouTube. Uh, we've got a Roku channel. We have a, an Apple TV channel. Uh, there's a free mobile app as well for iOS, uh, Android, and Amazon Kindle Fire tablets. I host a daily news commentary program. We've got Sci Friday. We. Sharon and I host a weekly program called Unraveling Revelation, where we talk about this uh, every single week, and we're getting ready to launch a new program called The Bible's Greatest Mysteries.
1: Ah, all right. much uh, A great deal going on. Always uh, very, very busy, and I appreciate you carving out an hour for us, and we'll talk to you next on Coast to Coast on Saturday. Look forward to it. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Derek Gilbert, co-author Giants, Gods, and Dragons. All right, when we come back, a simple um, but unassuming man, Joseph Lorendo from New Hampshire has lived a life of enchanting serendipities, and he'll share those with us next on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.